Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on May 19th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week we'll talk to high school scientists who have done some really fascinating research with the added benefit that I could actually understand most of it. At the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science back in February, I ran into a few dozen high school students who were presenting their research in a big poster session. The kids had won their state science competitions, sponsored by the American Junior Academy of Sciences. As I wandered through the posters, I wound up interviewing five of the winners whose research just grabbed me. We'll hear from Sruti Swaminathan, Maya Tenbrink, Alyssa Bailey, Mayuk Chatterjee, and Fedja Kadrabashic. First up is Sruti Swaminathan. She's a student at High Technology High School in Lincroft, New Jersey. I studied the effect of cell phone and Bluetooth devices on simulated driving performance. And why did you decide to do this study and what did you find? I decided to conduct a study on driving performances because as a 16-year-old, I'm going to be a future driver and I wanted to know the risks that would be I would be putting myself in by talking on a cell phone while driving or using a Bluetooth device while driving. And, and the risk you'd be putting me in as well. <laughs> yeah, and my also like fellow drivers on the roads. So what I did was I recruited 28 test subjects and had them complete three laps on the game Gran Turismo 3 for PlayStation 2. And they had a steering wheel and an acceleration brake pad to simulate a real driving experience. And I counted the number of crashes they made during each lap, which was the number of times they hit the wall and also the number of times that they deviated from the course. And after collecting that raw data, I used an ANOVA, which is a statistical test, and I found that there was a significant difference between the three modes of conversation. So I went on to uh, conduct three individual t-tests in between each mode of conversation. We'll back up a little bit. Three modes of conversation. Somebody next to you, somebody on a, on a telephone, and somebody with Bluetooth? Uh, yeah, the first one was with no conversation at all. Okay. And the second one was using a cell phone, and they would be talking on the cell phone, and I would be in a different room. They would be talking on the cell phone, holding it? Holding okay. It. So they had one hand to drive. And I would engage them in conversation with a set of scripted questions, and they would be questions that stimulated, like, thought like, what did you eat for dinner last night, or questions like that. And the third trial, they had a Bluetooth device, an earpiece, so they had both hands to drive. And I would also ask them another set of scripted questions. Okay, so what were your results? My results were that there were significant differences between all three modes of conversation, and using the Bluetooth device would be the safest option for a driver who wants to engage in conversation. But, of course, using no devices at all and not engaging in conversation while driving is the safest option for any driver. And actually holding the phone to your ear was the worst. Was the worst option, yeah. And give me some numbers. So the p-value for uh, without any devices versus like with a cell phone was 0.056 times 10 to the negative 6, which is extremely lower than the alpha value of 0.05. Okay, so all that means you have a very low uh, uh, risk. risk of crashing. Yes, that so, and the same thing for uh, no devices versus the Bluetooth device, which is 0. .002 times 10 to the negative 6, which is also extremely low. And the final comparison was between the cell phone and the Bluetooth device, and that was 0. .029, which is less than 0. .005, but not as significant. But you can still see that from the mean averages between all three uh, modes of conversation, using a Bluetooth, you only crashed 4.04 times in a lap, but using while using the cell phone, it was 5.04. And and how many times per lap with uh, no communication? Uh, That was only 1.79. Okay, so you're still crashing. (laughs) Again, this is just on a 
uh, PlayStation game. Yeah. But clearly, the your uh, and how many twenty eight uh, subjects again? Subjects. But with those subjects in your runs, you found a, a what appears to be a, quite a significant yeah. difference. Yeah. Maya Tenbrink attends Falmouth Academy in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Maya, tell me about your study. Uh, what it's called? The effects of um, of sleep deprivation on cockroach olfactory memory. And how did you wind up uh, getting interested in? in the, the relationship between sleep deprivation and memory. Was it uh, your own personal experiences? Um, kind of. I am a teenager. I never sleep enough. Um, I, I, I find any neuroscience stuff really fascinating, and memory sort of sparked my interest. Memory, sleep stuff. I just thought were interesting. And you studied olfaction as a way to get into memory. Yes, exactly. You're not particularly interested in how cockroaches smell things. No, and I ended up working with cockroaches only because, as a school project, um, in the state of Massachusetts, we have regulations on working with vertebrates. It's really difficult to get past to work with, like, mice or rats, and it's really impossible to work with humans. So I was just looking around for an invertebrate species that... They know, um, goes through periods of rest or sleep. And there aren't that many. Um, there's cockroaches, some species of bees, and also the fruit fly. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you're working with the species, the American cockroach. Yeah. And the American cockroach is pretty big. It can be maybe, what, an inch and a half long? Um, yeah, it's about um, two knuckles length. Two knuckles, yeah. okay. Yeah, and uh, they they have wings, unlike the Madagascar cockroach, Um but they can jump about six or seven inches uh, in your face. <laughs> so how did you do this work? Where did you get the roaches? Um, I had to order the roaches from a uh, from Carolina Biological Laboratories. And um, and I did all the work in my home. Um, I do live in Woods Hole, so it's a big scientific community. A lot of scientists in Woods yeah. Hole. Um, but I ended up not working with a mentor. I just worked in my own home and, um, and sort of enlisted my mother to help me just be an extra pair of hands um and i basically uh just was very careful about making sure the organism stayed always within like two containers um so that if they jumped out of one i could really smack down quickly i made i made a glove box i tried to make it as easy as possible to work with them but it was actually very difficult um, methods to carry out, and I had to make a lot of really fast decisions in the middle of the night about changing numbers of replications or simplifying a lot. I mean, I started out with a very ambitious plan to test and train at different times in their circadian rhythm, mm-hmm. and to just use a lot more replicates. And it, you know, became apparent pretty quickly that they're they're pretty quick buggers, and um, and and just getting one alone to train. To to, uh, to associate the taste and the smell was very difficult, so I had to just make a lot of quick decisions like that. So, what were you actually doing with with these critters? Um, well, I, I was working with forty five cockroaches, and so I I trained half of them um, according to their natural preference. I was using two odors, vanilla and peppermint, and they prefer vanilla and they dislike peppermint, and two uh, tastes as kind of reward and punishment sucrose solution as a reward and saline solution as a taste I mean, as, a, as, a as a punishment um, salt as a punishment yeah, sweet as a reward so half of them I trained against our natural preference so associating peppermint with sucrose and vanilla with saline and half according to what their preference already was and then of each of those groups 
I sleep deprive half of those and I la- allowed the others to rest normally. Now, how did you sleep deprive roaches? Um, I constructed kind of a shaking table um, and I kept them awake shaking and with loud noise. It was, kind of, it was made of like a rock tumbler and a tray and they were duct taped down there. Some other studies, um, when they have the equipment, they usually will blow CO2 into the faces of the cockroaches because um, it it causes a natural predatory response and they'll stay awake. They'll blow it every two seconds, the cockroaches. So it's like being, you know, poked awake continually. So what did you find? Um, well, there was a pretty significant effect on memory retention. Um, I was able to look at not, not only the memory retention, but how successful my training was. Obviously, um, I had a lot of trouble um, making sure that each cockroach was sort of getting exactly the same amount of solution and there was a lot of just sort of methods problems that uh, really could be fixed with a couple more hands and more planning time. Unfortunately, uh, because I was on the 24-hour schedule to deprive them exactly 24 hours, if I was going to make a quick decision, I had to do it then otherwise, order a whole new batch of cockroaches. Um, But I did find that their memory um, was decreased after sleep deprivation, a relatively significant amount. Um, in both the, the cockroaches trained according to and against their natural preference. A, a pro- can you explain approximately how much their memory was affected? The group trained against their natural preference. Um, because I'm looking at different types of behavior to try to decide um, whether that means they're sleep-deprived or not. So I was looking at um, three things. Uh, standing event, which was when they would go over to the, to the odor source and stand on top of it as if they kind of wanted to hang out by that order source. And then the other was a tasting event where they would actually associate the memory of the sucrose on their legs and begin to lick their legs when they were near to an order source. So I was using those two behavior criteria. So in terms of um, standing events, if the non-rest-deprived cockroaches for the group trained against their natural preference, about 50% of the time... Um, those standing events occurred near peppermint. And then after sleep deprivation, that went down to about 30%, so a 20% drop. And it's a smaller um, smaller difference for those trained according to their natural preference, and I'm not quite sure, well, sure why that is, but it probably has to do with, obviously, if they already preferred vanilla, sort of adding a reward may or may not have really made a significant difference. Very cool. And uh, do you want to be a psychologist or a neuroscientist? Yeah, that's that's definitely an area I want to continue in. We uh, we had a breakfast this morning with uh, AAAS scientists, and I hung out by the neuro table the whole time. It was a really wonderful experience. Alyssa Bailey goes to Central Lee High School in Donaldson, Iowa. Well, I'm really wanting to be a pharmacist when I get older, so I wanted to do something in the medical field to see if I was really interested in it. So to get started, I just took different pain relievers and I dissolved them in a control, which would be distilled water. Well, tell me what what was your goal? What did you want to find out? Um, Really, all I wanted to find out to see which would dissolve the quickest, therefore give you better relief faster. Your assumption was that whichever pain reliever dissolved the fastest would wind up knocking out your headache the fastest. Yep. Okay. Do we know if that's a, a legitimate assumption? Um, I really want to do a further testing because I know that absorption rates into your blood won't be the same. 
So knowing that um, aspirin dissolves faster, I wanted to test the different absorption rates into your blood to see if it would actually absorb faster, because who knows, that one might be the slowest to absorb. But but this study is about which ones dissolve... The rates of, of yeah. dissolving of the various ones. So what, which ones did you test and what did you find? Um, I tested aspirins, Tylenol, and ibuprofen, and then I tested like a store brand and a name brand. Our ibuprofen seemed to take longer to dissolve. Tylenol was about in the middle, and then aspirin was really fast to dissolve. It took about 15 seconds to, to dissolve. So this study seems like... Uh, you, you could do it at home in your kitchen. Yep, I did it right in my dining room. Uh, how long did it take? Um, it took quite a while because I had to. Um, I took. I did a bunch of trials with all of them, so I would wait for it to dissolve, and then I'd have to t- carry it to my kitchen, clean it out, make sure it was all nice and clean before I did it again. The glassware, you mean? Yeah, um, I used beakers. I put a hundred milliliters of the stomach acid solution in that. Where did you get that? Um, I made that with hydrochloric acid and distilled water, and I made that a pH of 1. Now, how did you measure when the dissolving was complete? Um, I would. I ran a couple of test runs first to see how they would dissolve. Um, there was a few, there was a liquid pill that I tested, and when, once that dissolved, the coating, it was all dissolved. It was that liquid, but all the other ones were more particles. Yeah, and so I just made sure there wasn't one solid pill left, that they were all, the particles were pretty much equal in size. I see. So you, you would just eyeball mm-hmm. the beaker and make sure that you, you might not have dissolved it so that it was invisible, but you wanted to make sure that it was granular and completely uniform in granularity. Yep. And uh, so the next step in this ongoing research project is going to be the, the uptakes yeah, I really want to test the blood absorptions, but um, blood's kind of tricky to work with in labs and get into the science fair. So we're trying to work our way around that and see what else I can do. How many headaches did you get working on this? <laughs> I didn't get any, but a lot of people would stop and ask me if I had any of the pain relievers left over. Moyuk Chatterjee also goes to High Technology High School in Lincroft, New Jersey. Well, basically, for a while now, I've been interested in efficiency in industry. I really want to make things more efficient, like I'm the kid who works with solar power and wants to work on solar panels. So basically what I did is I was working on a previous project. I was trying to develop a project where I wanted to create a sort of magnetic plastic. And I did some research and I found there was a lot of high-level chemistry involved and I just did not have that knowledge. But while working on doing the research for that, I found a very interesting concept where a person had put two refrigerator magnets together to sort of make a worm gear. And I was looking at that, and I was trying to understand how that worked, and it didn't make any sense. But I, Again, you, you said to make a worm gear. Yeah. So explain what a worm gear is. Basically what you have in a worm gear is you have a normal um, gear called a spur gear, and it's basically the normal gear you see every day. And what you have connected to that is the worm gear, but a worm gear is like a cylinder with a spiral gear around it. So it rotates almost perpendicular to the axis of the gear. Okay, so you have like a bicycle chain, but you combine that with an Archimedes screw. Yeah, pretty much. And so they made a magnetic worm gear. And for that, you'd have to have magnetic fields be completely perpendicular to each other and still interact, and I had no idea how that could work. But I realized that if you made a special array uh, called the Halbach array, 
And in a Halbach array, basically you have the north-south domains of the magnet uh, rotate 90 degrees for every new magnet. You could put two of those together and have the magnetic fields line up such that you could create a conventional gear, except the gear faces would not touch. And so basically what you could do then is have a much more efficient gear because you'd minimize all that heat and vibrations and noise in the gear system. So what I did is I took refrigerator magnets, which are already prefabricated in the special array, and I made a linear magnet and a circular magnet. And I tested that against a traditional gear system that I purchased online. And basically I did some kinetic energy calculations where I put the gear rack on an air track to minimize friction between the gear rack and its surface, and the gear on an axle which was mounted on two metallic washers to minimize friction there, and basically slid the gear rack underneath the gear and saw how fast the gear rack was going before it made contact with the gear, how fast it was going afterwards, and how fast the gear rotated after contact. And so basically I was able to calculate kinetic energies for the gear rack before and after contact and the gear after contact. So I had two output kinetic energies and one input kinetic energy, and I could calculate efficiencies for both systems. What did you find? Basically my magnetic system, which I engineered, was about 30% more efficient than a conventional system. So I saved 30% of the heat loss and energy that came out of a traditional gear system. When you say 3%, you mean, for example, 10 Actually, versus 7, but that's that's a huge difference yeah, because like, that's more like 30%. Yeah, exactly. Like 30% of the energy lost by a normal system was saved by the system that I made. So, I mean, it, it worked out. I was really happy. Looking at the data, you wouldn't expect it, but once I did the analyses, it worked out. Uh, Do you expect this is going to find some application out there? I really it, it probably already is being tried in industry, yeah. but... I really hope so. I mean, really, I found a couple papers on magnetic gears used in industry, but they were ridiculously complex. They had iron magnets arranged around um, a permanent magnet in the center with, like, cylindrical poles everywhere. It was ridiculous diagrams, and I just wanted to go bottom-up and take the simpler approach. I mean... Really what I want to do in the future is work with these magnets and either use stronger magnets or a more effective sort of array. Keep it really simple and just come up with something that is industry compatible. So I could have a cheap gear system which you can buy and which is significantly more efficient than the traditional system. Very cool. So what's, uh, what's in your future? Mechanical engineering? Electrical engineering? I'm actually looking at two very different fields. Um, I'm looking at nanotechnology and a sort of nanotechnology application to engineering and efficiency in the field, so I'd like to, I'd love to work on nanotech and solar technology. Um, but then again, I'm also looking at biomed and biomedical engineering because I really love um, sort of the artificial organ synthesis they're doing with protein scaffolds, and on the other hand, sort of using genetic recombination to produce insulin and drugs from bacteria. Fedja Kadrabashic is a student at West Boca Raton Community High School in Boca Raton, Florida. I looked at how factors that affect tornado formation have uh, changed over time because it's a very big problem for scientists to look at how actual tornado numbers have changed over time. Every time a new technology is introduced to study tornadoes, the number of tornadoes that are documented increases. So scientists are not sure if the increase in, in tornado numbers are due to the technology or if they're due to an actual climate change. I tried to look at the situation from a different approach by looking at 
certain factors that affect tornadoes and seeing how they've changed over time. Namely, these factors are CAPE, which is convective available potential energy, which is the maximum amount of energy that a rising parcel, which is an arbitrary amount of mass, can have as it's rising through the atmosphere. Wind shear, which is the difference in wind vectors at the top and bottom of the atmosphere, and uh, specific humidity, which is the ratio of water to the total mass of a moist system. So we're looking at basically the environmental conditions and the amount of available energy. Well, the, all three of the factors that I talked about right now affect tornadoes. There's, there's, well, one is like the amount of energy that's available to it. Another is the amount of well, the wind shear, which is the difference in wind, and the amount of humidity that's available. All three are required for ter- for tornadoes to form. The, the only thing is, it's like I did two parts of the study. The first of which was to see whether these factors are actually greater in tornadic versus non-tornadic areas. Because once I established that, I can look at whether or not there was a change over time. So you must have found that they were greater because your study does have two parts. Yes, that's correct. And the only, uh, for all three of the factors, the difference was very, very significant the, with the p-values being extremely small. All except for wind shear, the only reason being was that the control area that was used is mountainous. So in a mountainous area, the wind shear happens to be very large because the amount of wind at the top versus at the bottom of the mountain can be a very large difference. But since I did establish that these factors are greater in tornadic areas, I can now look at these factors to see if they have changed over time. I looked at averages for them, for all three of them it, during the month of May, and I ran a test called a linear regression t-test to see how these average factors in the month of May have changed over time. I was only able to use the years 1980 to 2006, though, because that is how far the data goes on these average values. Even though I did not get a statistically significant change the p-values that I did get are so very small and since my sample size is also very small um, one we have to look at this information a lot more if we're going to see whether or not there has been in fact a change over time. So you're basically looking at the factors influencing the tornado formation and, and the change in those factors. We're not sure yet whether the tornado uh, increase is a function of environmental conditions changing or our ability to detect them. That's basically what I tried to do to see if there has been any change if there has been any change in these factors which could mean that there's a change in climate which could then finally mean that there has been a change in tornado numbers. So it's a very indirect approach but one that is very applicable. Uh, applicable to meteorology. What was the biggest thing you learned trying to do this work? Well, probably the biggest thing I've learned is that it takes a lot of time um, to collect all the data, even though there wasn't actual data collecting per se like you would do in in some other kind of experiment, something biology or in chemistry. The data that needed to be collected, which was from from like different databases, was took such a huge amount of time. It's 
took a couple of months actually ju just to collect the data. The tests themselves took a very little time, but it's just you have to have like a scale. Just like how like research takes a really long time sometimes. But these people spend, spend years working on it, then they and sometimes they don't even get get anything out of it. So just have to keep that in mind when doing research. So I'm sure any of the graduate students listening can relate to that. Um, so are, are you interested in becoming a professional atmospheric scientist, or where do you see yourself? Well, meteorology is pretty interesting, but I would rather pursue some other aspect of the uh, physical science. Probably thinking physics or mathematics, those are pr pretty interesting to me. Um, I might pursue um, meteorology, but that might be just from like, like a standpoint of thermodynamics or something, not like actually looking at uh, weather data. Although meteorology is interesting, and you know, I never know. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, the astronauts who just serviced the Hubble telescope will testify before Congress in Washington on May 21st. Story two, the Maleo is a bird about the size of a chicken, but its eggs are about five times larger than chicken eggs. Story three, cigarette smoke may prevent allergies by lowering the immune reaction. And story four, good evidence that people were keeping cats as pets much earlier than in ancient Egypt. Archaeologists at a 9,500-year-old site in Cyprus found a house cat and a human buried in adjacent graves. Time's up. Story four is true. The cat and the human were buried together and in the same orientation. That's according to a 2004 report from the Paris National Museum of Natural History, which is cited in the new article, The Evolution of House Cats, in the June issue of Scientific American. You can read it free at our website. Just go to scientificamerican.com slash science mag. Story two is true. The chicken-sized Maleo lays a huge egg, which it buries in the sand at its home on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. The chicks hatch, climb out of the sand, and are already able to fly and fend for themselves, probably because they're already fully grown in the giant eggs. Last week, the beach the Maleos used to nest became protected habitat. It was bought by a local NGO called Wildlife and Wildlands Conservation, which works with the New York-based Wildlife Conservation Society. Here, courtesy of the WCS, is the actual call of the Maleo. Sounds like it was laying the giant eggs and saying, why? And story three is true. Smoking does plenty of bad stuff, but a new study finds that cigarette smoke decreases the allergic response, in mice anyway. Smoke inhibits activity of so-called mast cells, which drive the immune system's response to allergens. The report appears in the journal Clinical and Experimental Allergy. Obviously, taking up smoking to cure allergies is a bad idea. Maybe you could just run through a smoke-filled room. All of which means that story one about the Hubble Service astronaut team testifying in D.C. on May 21st is totally bogus. Oh, they will be testifying before the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Commerce, Justice, and Science, but they'll be doing it from the orbiting shuttle, which isn't scheduled to land till the next day. What's the difference between outer space and a congressional hearing room? Why, the hot air, of course. What's 
Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out scientificamerican.com for the latest science news, including our in-depth report on how to build a better engine, which we're going to have to do with new gas mileage standards coming. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yes,